You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Welcome my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 25th day of July, 2010. I'd like to ask all of my listeners, as always, to check into my websites, including CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, ClimateGate.tv, and now NewWorldNextWeek.Blip.tv, where you can watch all of the episodes of the New World Next Week in high quality, or subscribe to the RSS feed to get them delivered directly to your podcatcher of choice. And I'd also like to ask my listeners to support those websites that help to support the Corbett Report, including MediaMonarchy.com, TragedyAndHope.com, RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, and ZeroPointRadio.com, which, as of the time of this recording on Sunday the 25th of July 2010, has received exactly $0 in its chip-in drive to stay online through the month of August, meaning that we will probably lose another alternative media website due to apathy. But once again, I would like to thank all of my listeners for the support that I have received at the Corbett Report website over the years, without which this website and all of the work that I've produced would not have been possible. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 25th day of July 2010. And now for the real news. The much-touted Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, which was signed into law last week, is now making headlines for provisions affecting whistleblowers in the securities industry. Proponents of the new law are touting reforms that will potentially make it easier for whistleblowers to report securities fraud to government agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and will increase cash rewards for whistleblowers to come forward. Many analysts, however, point to the abysmal track record of these agencies in dealing with whistleblower information as a sign that this new law will only give a false sense of security to those with knowledge of trading violations. Boston financial analyst Harry Markopoulos lobbied for years to get the SEC to scrutinize the $50 billion Ponzi scheme being run by infamous fraudster Bernie Madoff, but his detailed analysis of the Madoff scam was completely ignored by the SEC. It later emerged that Madoff's niece had married Eric Swanson, who was working as a compliance official for the SEC at the time Madoff was being investigated. In September 2004, Layla Widler reported suspicious activity at the Houston-based company of RL and Stanford to the SEC's Fort Worth office. Nothing was done with that information until finally moving against it in early 2009. It emerged this year that the SEC had been aware of the scam since 1997, but had taken 12 years to act because they had had a difficult time building a case against Stanford's Ponzi scheme. During the time that the SEC failed to act, the amount Stanford built from investors grew from $250 million to $7 billion. 
Earlier this year, a British metals trader named Andrew McGuire blew the whistle on precious metal market manipulation by J.P. Morgan. On February 3rd of this year, McGuire sent emails to the CFTC predicting precise ma manipulations that then took place just two days later. But the CFTC Enforcement Division has taken no action on the matter. Earlier this week, Bill Murphy of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee appeared on the Corbett Report to discuss the latest details of the Andrew McGuire whistleblowing case. Tell us a little bit about the, the Andrew McGuire story and any update you have to that story. Well, uh, uh, Andrew McGuire thought he would speak before the CFTCs in London. He's a former Goldman Sachs guy. He's in the gold business. and. They would let him testify at this March 25th hearing, so they got his statement uh, to myself, which I read to the surprise of everybody, and I showed everybody the emails and what Andrew McGuire had to say, and he told the CFTC in advance was going to happen. My testimony that day was the only one on, on this webcast all over the world that was blanked out. I mean, unbelievable. Only my testimony was not allowed to be seen at the time, and then the next day, Andrew McGuire and his wife were hit by a car, in London, and uh, it was a helicopter chase, and the guy hit two other cars to try to get away. And but he's still involved, uh, talking about it with people. Uh, he's being interviewed quite a bit. Um, there's going to be a lot of excitement, which will be announced uh, um, in the weeks ahead. And uh, your listeners and viewers can stay tuned, and you can give them an update because we think it's going to be pretty exciting. Critics have long pointed out that the seeming incompetence of these agencies is in fact due to the collusion of the regulators with the companies that they are supposedly regulating in attempts to suppress the most startling evidence of market manipulation. Earlier this year, Richard Andrew Grove released a documentary about his attempts to blow the whistle on an electronic backdoor in Sarbanes-Oxley compliance software that actually facilitated the very fraud that the legislation was supposed to prevent, and the fact that investigative journalists like Lowell Bergman of PBS's celebrated Frontline refused to touch the story. I wasn't so much interested in Frontline doing a story on me. What I found to be interesting was after I had identified that there was a backdoor in the product that I was selling, and the product I was selling was Sarbanes-Oxley regulation software that was being used by financial services company across all, all over the world, but specifically across America. And once I understood that the purpose of Sarbanes-Oxley regulations was to keep these companies from deleting files and that the backdoor in the software allowed these companies to delete files, and more importantly, the fact that someone outside of the company that's not even associated with the company but has access to that software could launder money or steal money or just delete money from corporations and switch financial records all around without anyone, any investigator, any auditor being able to audit that. Those things I thought were interesting, but when the SEC, after I told them, bought the software with the back door in it and was started to use it for itself, then I knew that the SEC was not there to regulate like I thought it was. They were also, hey, we can find a benefit from this back door in the software. We can delete files now. Now we're above the law. And so essentially the people who were perpetrating the scam also had control or at least controlling influence over the supposed investigatory organizations and agencies. And that's what I thought the American people needed to find out through Lowell Bergman because the traditional press, the, the newspapers we went to wanted nothing to do with this because it conflicted with their advertisers. So I was hoping that since Bergman did such a good job and was featured in this Hollywood film and had helped this other whistleblower that, you know, it would be appropriate for him to at least investigate the story and if there was something to it. But he didn't come back and say there's nothing to your story. He said there's so much to your story that we can't publish it. Earlier this week, it was revealed that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is responsible for Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower protection requests, 
has only upheld 25 of the 1,066 whistleblower claims filed, meaning that 98% of Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower protection requests are rejected. In other whistleblower news, Kings Point graduate Lieutenant Eric Schein appeared on the Corbett Report earlier this week to blow the whistle on the Coast Guard's use of military tribunals against American civilians. I've worked for General Electric as a civilian uh, project manager and was trained on federal contracting. I've also been a civil service port engineer for the Navy, uh, for Naval Fleet Auxiliary Force, Military Sea Lift Command, and other commands and authorities, both as a civilian and as a naval officer. So I'm very well versed on not only the issue of Title X, UCMJ, who and what the Coast Guard is supposed to be, but also federal contracting that gets into a lot of, you know, why the Coast Guard has come after me. Um, but what the Coast Guard is saying now, since at least or minimally 2003, the, the war was launched in March, or on or about between March 18th and March 22nd of 2003. Homeland Security was just created at that time. The Coast Guard moved from the Department of Transportation, not the Department of Defense, but the Department of Transportation into the Department of Homeland Security, into the newly created Department of Homeland Security. And when it did, it began to declare that it is and has always been since 1915 a branch of military that is not bound by posse comitatus, that is not bound by Title V, which is the uh, Administrative Procedure Act that they're trying to use to carry on these um, you know, military tribunals of civilians here in the United States, that they are not bound or prohibited by Title X, which is the Department of Defense, it's military law, in other news this week, Coca-Cola was forced to halt a Facebook promotion campaign for its Dr. Pepper brand after it posted references to a porn movie to a 14-year-old's Facebook profile. The campaign involved Facebook users allowing Coca-Cola to hijack their Facebook status updates for a chance to win $1,000 each week. The company then posted embarrassing status updates to users' accounts in an attempt to garner viral publicity for their campaign. One user complained after the campaign resulted in a reference to an infamous porn movie being inserted into her 14-year-old daughter's Facebook status. When the parent complained, Coca-Cola attempted to smooth things over by offering her tickets to a West End show and a night in a London hotel. After the parent revealed details of the incident on an online parenting forum, the resulting furor forced Coca-Cola to offer a formal apology and to pull the entire Facebook campaign. Public anger over the incident is just the latest black eye for a company that has often come under fire for its atrocious business practices, including its use of child labor in sugar cane fields in El Salvador, its use of prison laborers at Chinese coke plants, chronic drought and polluted water problems around bottling plants in India that have led to fierce protests, and a case currently before the New York Supreme Court alleging that the company knew about and sought to cover up human rights abuses in Guatemala. Earlier this month, Max Kaiser appeared on the Corbett Report to talk about how the Wall Street hedge funds can be used as leverage to bankrupt Coca-Cola through organized political action. So now you've got a boycott that's taking revenues away from the company. The company is reporting decreased earnings. The stock starts to sell off. Then hedge funds start to attack it, and they fuel the stock price to move down lower, which of course encourages more people to boycott, 
and you're now you've got leverage. Now you're using the inherent leverage in the system against the system. You're using leverage by picking the most vulnerable company to a boycott, and then you're magnifying that leverage by triggering a response in the hedge fund community to do your dirty work for you. Now stay tuned to CorporateReport.com for episode 139 of The Corporate Report, Know Your History, Colonial Script, where we talk to Ellen Brown of Web of Debt about an historical example of the people taking the power of money away from the banksters. Welcome, my friends, to episode 139 of The Corporate Report, Know Your History, Colonial Script. A topic that we've returned to time and again throughout the history of this podcast is the phony and fraudulent basis for our economic system, and we return to that topic over and over again because it is undoubtedly one of the foundational structures of our society, and it determines so much about the way our society operates. If we weren't in a system of perpetual debt slavery to the banksters who create the money out of nothing our society would undoubtedly look very different than it does today. In fact, we can see very easily how a very few people can control an entire society and indeed an entire civilization merely by controlling the strings of the purse, or more accurately, controlling the supply of money itself, creating it and extinguishing it. Once someone has the power to do that, they have the power to steer society in whatever direction they wish. And it is undoubtedly because of the realization of the fundamental fraud at the basis of our economic structure that we concentrate so often and so vociferously on the topic of monetary reform. It is a key question that goes right to the basis of how our civilization operates and the type of world we want to create. It cannot be stressed enough how important monetary reform is to all of the other reforms that we want to see in the world. Politicians who are controlled by the money interests are not going to give us what we want merely because we ask for it. They, like the marionettes that they are, have to be cut by the strings which connects them to the bankers and the monetary interests. And those strings are, of course, the fraud which is our current monetary system. This is a point which I feel, I trust, I hope, that I have made effectively over the course of the past 138 or so podcast episodes. Even when it's not explicitly the topic which we're talking about, it is implicit underneath everything. But I do fear that those who have been following my podcast may have been left with the mistaken impression that those who are opposed to the current financial structure all agree on the alternative solution which will free us from this perpetual debt slavery to the banksters. By no means are, is there only one solution on the table or one idea being offered. There are in fact a lot of different ideas being proposed by a lot of different people who, at face value at least, are all very well-meaning people. And it's very easy to start pointing fingers at other people who ha- happen to have a different idea, a different solution, a different alternative that than you would like to see enacted and assume that they are working for the other side. But I would like to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that there are rational people who I respect very much who differ very greatly on what the alternatives and what the solutions for our monetary crisis really are. 
Now, I think one side of the solution or the alternative that I have, I feel, given great coverage on this podcast is the gold is money side of the Austrian school of economics, represented, of course, most famously in our age by Ron Paul, and represented by numerous others besides, like Peter Schiff and people of that stripe, and of course, regular guest Bob Chapman. But there is most definitely another side to this debate. In fact, there are numerous sides, but today we'll be concentrating on one broad section of the other side of the debate, and that is the people who believe that, in effect, money can and should be created out of nothing. It's a question of who is creating that money, how, and for what purpose. Now, that probably sounds like heresy to a lot of the people who have come to accept the Austrian school of economics thinking on this matter as orthodoxy that cannot be questioned, but I assure you it is not, and there are many well-meaning people who do suggest that this is the case, and today we're going to learn about an historical example of the power of the creation of money being taken and used by the people for the people. It is possible It has happened before. It could happen again. So let's start delving into the historical example of today's episode, and that is obviously, as if you have checked the episode's title, Colonial Scrip. What is Colonial Scrip? Well, let's find out, and let's start finding out by taking another listen to another segment of a documentary that I have featured before on this podcast, and that is The Secrets of Oz by Bill Still, who most people will know is the narrator and one of the writers of The Money Masters, which is another documentary that we've listened to many times on this podcast, and is absolutely recommended viewing for every single person on the planet. Secrets of Oz is no less interesting and no less full of extremely, extremely educational material about economic history and the real solutions to our economic crisis. So let's listen to this historical example, and we'll listen to a short extract from Secrets of Oz, where Bill Still discusses the history of colonial scrip. Pre-revolutionary America was still relatively poor. There was a severe shortage of precious metal coins to trade for goods, so the early colonists were increasingly forced to experiment with printing their own homegrown paper money. This paper money was called Colonial Scrip. Colonial Scrip was a dangerous concept for bankers. It broke the colonies free of the privately owned central bank system where money had to be created by banks and then loaned to governments. As Franklin put it, In the colonies, we issue our own money. It is called Colonial Scrip. We control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay to no one. In 1764, the British Parliament passed the Currency Act. Again, it ordered all Americans to pay their taxes in gold or silver coin. For those who believe that a return to a gold-backed money is the answer for America's current monetary problems, look what happened to America after the Currency Act of 1764 was passed. As Franklin put it, In one year, the conditions were so reversed that the era of prosperity ended and a depression set in, to such an extent that the streets of the colonies were filled with unemployed. To Ben Franklin, this return to a gold money system was the basic cause for the American Revolution. The colonies would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters, 
had it not been that England took away from the colonies their money, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. Americans were mad and did everything they could to get around Britain's gold money system. In 1765, Parliament passed the Stamp Act, requiring that every item sold had to have a stamp placed on it indicating that a tax had been paid on that item and paid in gold. This is what drove America to open revolt. Do you understand what that means? Without gold, you could literally buy or sell nothing. Why? Because the British had successfully forced the colonies to pay for everything using only a precious commodity, gold. This is the very definition of the word plutocracy, rule by the rich. These people that deal with gold and silver only have never spent one minute of actually trying to figure out how it worked in history, how it would work in real life. And the only way they can support their gold theories is they just treat it as religion and said, we don't have to understand it, we just know that that's God's money and it'll work, and that's not true. By the outbreak of the revolution in April 1775, the colonies started printing a new form of paper money to finance the war. It was called continental currency because unlike colonial scrip, it was the first issued by the new central government. Continentals were great at first, but then the British started counterfeiting it massively, sending it to America literally by the bale. By the end of the war, the currency was virtually worthless. As George Washington lamented, a wagon load of money will scarcely purchase a wagon load of provisions. Earlier, colonial scrip had worked because just enough was issued to facilitate trade and counterfeiting was minimal. In other words, the quantity was controlled by the government that issued it. Gold bugs today try to claim that because paper money didn't work during the Revolutionary War, it shouldn't be used today. But keep in mind, it doesn't matter what backs your money. All that matters is who controls its quantity. Will it be your elected officials, or will it be some unelectable banker? Colonial paper money before the Revolution had worked so well that the Bank of England had Parliament outlawed and forced America to use only gold money, gold which they controlled. Well, if you sense an animosity from that clip between the camp of people who would believe that bills of credit are the solution and people who believe that gold is the solution, then I suppose you're quite correct. And yes, at times the rhetoric can get rather heated and each can accuse the other side of being genocidal maniacs or being on the side of the banksters or the New World Order or what have you. And it is certainly not my intention today to get into that debate in any great detail because there's very much to be said on both sides. And I'm not even sure myself that I would definitively come down at this point on one side or the other seeing the both the defects and the good points of both arguments. So suffice it to say for all the gold bugs out there that are just itching to send me e angry emails, even suggesting that anything other than gold could be used as money, well, today's point is not ne necessarily to sway you from that viewpoint, merely to educate both sides about the relative merits and demerits of the other side of the debate. Now, the first important distinction that we need to make when we're talking about this concept is to note that there are, in fact, two main varieties of fiat money, that is, bills of debt and bills of credit. 
And bills of debt are what we commonly understand as fiat money, i.e. the Federal Reserve notes that most Americans are carrying around in their pockets right now, as well as most of the notes in most of the countries where my listeners reside are bills of debt, which is to say issued uh, at, at the behest of the government from a central, privately owned central bank at debt paid back to those banks by the government. And, of course, collected from the people, extracted from the people, shall we say, through taxes. So that is the bill of debt system of uh, fiat money. But there's another called the bill of credit, which is a completely debt-free money issued out of thin air, exactly as the banks do, except issued out of thin air by the governments, and therefore, theoretically at least, by the people, for the benefit of the people. And I I understand the misgivings that many of my listeners might have in the idealism inherent in such an idea, but nonetheless, it is a valuable idea to take a look at, and there are some good reasons why it is a valuable idea to take a good look at. So let's start getting into some specifics. And for our first delving into the colonial script idea, let's take a look at uh, an article entitled simply enough, Colonial Script, from a website called Friends of the American Revolution at 21stCenturyCicero.wordpress.com. And that reads in part, quote, Colonial script was not backed by gold or silver, and therefore the colonies could control its purchasing power. This was a revolutionary concept in economics because the conventional European mercantilist system of money required governments to borrow from banks and pay interest for those loans, as gold and silver were the only regarded forms of money. This is known as the debt-based money system, where banknotes are bills of debt. Colonial script, however, were bills of credit, created by the government, based on the credit of that government, and this meant that there was no interest to pay for the introduction of money. This went a considerable way towards defraying the expense of the colonial governments and in maintaining prosperity. The governments charged low interest when it loaned out this paper money to its citizens, with land as collateral, and this interest income lowered the tax burden on the people, contributing to prosperity. The currency was born when a lack of gold and silver in the colonies made trade hard to conduct, and a barter system prevailed. One by one, the colonies began to issue their own paper money to serve as a medium of exchange to make trade vibrant. The governments could then retire excess notes out of circulation by taxing the people, helping some colonies generally avoid inflation. Each colony had its own currency, and some were better managed than others. It was banned by English Parliament in the Currency Act after Benjamin Franklin had explained the benefits of this currency to the British Board of Trade. Outlawing the circulating medium caused a depression in the colonies, and Franklin and many others believed it to be the true cause of the American Revolution. End quote. Again, this is an extremely interesting idea, and it must be noted that this is not the same as the fiat money that is currently in use today. It's a slightly different concept, and the slight difference makes a world of difference in terms of whether or not the banksters control this form of money. And indeed, it can be shown with documentary evidence from the historical record that the banksters time and again opposed vociferously this idea of people creating their own money out of nothing, debt-free to the banksters. So there is something to be said for this idea, at least. And, of course, there is always the specter of hyperinflation when we're talking about any type of fiat money, be it bill of credit or bill of debit. 
And that specter, of course, was raised in that Secrets of Oz clip that we just listened to, where it was noted that the continental currency, the continental script, was, in fact, prone to hyperinflation. And that's why that money eventually collapsed. Now, that's an important period of history to understand as well. And the Secrets of Oz basically says that that was because the British were counterfeiting the uh, continental currency in order to hyperinflate it. And and that may, may in fact be the explanation, but there may be more to it. But at any rate, it's important to note that not all fiat money are inevitably going to collapse, or at least it seems that way from a lesson from history that we can garner from the Pennsylvanian colony in particular, which was perhaps the most successful in implementing the colonial script idea. And we get that from later on in that same article from Friends of the American Revolution. Quote, the Pennsylvania version of this currency was said to be the most effective because they controlled the money supply and issued only enough notes so as to satisfy the demands of trade, preventing inflation. In 1938, Dr. Richard A. Lester, an economist at Princeton University, wrote that the price level during the 52 years prior to the American Revolution, and while Pennsylvania was on a paper standard, was more stable than the American price level has been during any succeeding 50-year period. Pennsylvania established a land bank that allowed landowners to borrow scrip with their land as collateral. They could borrow twice the value of their land, half of it representing actual land value, and the other half representing production potential of the land. The loan was to be retired over a set period of years, with the land ownership being restored to the citizen upon payment. When the loan was fully retired, another loan could be taken out. End quote. So here we have an example of the Pennsylvanian colony, which for 52 years operated as stable fiat money based on bills of credit, not bills of debt and which operated very well, indeed. In fact, better than any other time in American history, until it was shut down by the King of England at the behest of the mothership Bank of England, and the banksters who were absolutely incensed that there was this upstart colony that dared to issue their own money instead of coming cap in hand to the banksters, or indeed starving to death because there simply wasn't enough gold or silver to go around. Now, this is an extremely important point and one that I think is extremely well made in that Secrets of Oz documentary. So once again, I would exhort people to go to the Secrets of Oz homepage and get the documentary so you can watch it in its entirety with all of the documentary evidence that they have about the banksters really raging over this idea of a uh, bill of credit issued by the people for the people. So again, that's a very important documentary and I exhort people to take a look at, at it for themselves. But in order to further explore in particular the colonial script idea, well, let's listen to a bit of an interview that I conducted earlier this week with Ellen Brown, the author of the highly popular Web of Debt book, and of course available at webofdebt.com and ellenbrown.com. And we talked earlier this week about colonial script, where it came from, how it was implemented, and whether it could serve as a model for us going forward. So let's listen to a brief extract from that interview. Colonial script uh, was first used actually a year before the Bank of England was founded. So it was 1693, first used by the governor of Massachusetts when he uh, found himself in a local wars uh, and he didn't have... Uh, the money to pay for it. 
they didn't have gold and silver in the colonies. And so he tried to borrow, but there was nobody to borrow. Nobody had the money to lend. So he got the idea that he would just write these little paper receipts that were they're basically IOUs. Um, and he paid the soldiers with it and paid the supply, suppliers. And then those little receipts were traded in the community as money. And it was discovered that this worked very well, that you could just trade these little IOUs as money. So all the colonies started following that pattern um, in different forms. Some, some actually issued IOUs that were supposed to be redeemed later in hard currency, silver or gold. But some just circulated as legal tender. They were um, they were considered money in themselves. They never would be redeemed. Or some would were technically supposed to be redeemed with taxes, but it was so far into the future that they never were actually redeemed. So this worked well, except the problem was that if they weren't ever, if they went out and they didn't come back to the government, in other words, they weren't redeemed, then... Um, eventually it would hyperinflate the system and drive prices up so you'd have more and more money competing for the same number of goods and that would drive prices up but in Pennsylvania and in the middle colonies they got another idea where instead of just having the money go, go out and not come back so that it winds up inflating the system they would um, have the money lent to the farmers and, and to the citizens and then it, it would come back to the to the lender. So the government was actually a lender. In Pennsylvania, um, the provincial government set up a land bank, which the government owned, and it printed the, these same things, these IOUs, or bills of credit, as Benjamin Franklin called them, that um, were lent to the farmers. And it was called a land bank, because supposedly this, this money was backed not by gold and silver, but by land. In other words, it was, there were mortgages. The, the farmers would mortgage their land for these loans. and um, But in fact, they never collected the land. They, it, it, but so it was just sort of a, it was a, it made it look good, you know, to have it backed by something. So they called it a land bank. Um, so they, in Pennsylvania, they lent at 5% interest, whereas the British bankers were lending at 8% interest. And before that, nobody wanted to come to Pennsylvania because you just there was no money there. You couldn't get the loans from there. There weren't any British banks, so and there was no gold and silver, so it was very difficult to get currency at all. So now the um, provincial government set up this this land bank, lent to the farmers at five percent interest, and um, the money would come back to the government with interest. So it became a big money maker for the government during that that bank was in place, which was from 1723 to the mid-1750s um, when King George uh, forbade the colonies to issue their own money, or it forbade new issues of colonial script. Um, during that time, there was no, uh, the government had no debts, there were no taxes, and um, prices did not inflate. So it was a completely sustainable system. When, when you had the private bankers lending money, they created the principal for their loans, but they didn't create the interest. So they were always taking more money back than they put out there, which meant that somebody somewhere had to take out another loan to find the interest to pay principal on interest in the old, on the old loans. 
but in the colonial system where it was the government-owned bank, the government could issue the interest or enough money to cover the interest uh, at, on the side as um, to pay for government, you know, needs. So let's say you issued $105 in scrip. You could, colonial scrip is what they called this paper money. So you could issue like $100 at 5% interest. Then you could spend $5 on roads and bridges and things the government needed. And then the whole 105 would come back as principal in interest on the loan. So it was sustainable. You, you know, once you did that, you never had to print more money to, to, uh, to keep the, to cover principal and interest and to keep the uh, money circulating. So it's fair to say that the Pennsylvania example was, was the most successful. Right. And, and explain again the difference between Pennsylvania and some of the other colonies. Uh, well, the northern colonies were the ones that tend to just print and print and print. It was all an experiment, and people didn't really know then about inflation and what the effects would be. So, so they tended to print lavishly for all the projects they thought they wanted, which actually worked in the sense that they got all these projects built that would not otherwise have been built. But it did tend to devalue the currency because there was just more and more of this paper money out there. So in Pennsylvania, that didn't happen because um, the money came back to the government. Um, Benjamin Franklin was from Pennsylvania, and he was he was called the father of paper money. He wrote about it in this pam famous pamphlet that was circulated all over the colonies, and um, it was he who went to England when King George said we could no longer issue our own script. He went to England to argue about it. Actually, the wrong thing because he made things worse. But anyway, he, he was the big proponent of this form of currency, although he didn't devise it. It was in Pennsylvania. It was, I think, set up by William Penn, the, uh, the governor. But Franklin just saw what a good, he saw it operate and realized what, how much good it had done for the colony. And that's when he wrote about it. And Right, and I understand that Benjamin Franklin actually said that this was the issue that really led to the War of Independence. Yes, there are a number of historians who said that, uh, that what it was really about. In uh, 1751, uh, King George II forbade the colonies to issue new, uh, new issues of paper money. In other words, they could still use what was out there, but they couldn't put out new money. And... Um, the reason was that the merchants, the British merchants, had complained because they were getting all this different kind of paper from different colonies, and nobody knew exactly what it was. Some of it was uh, were IOUs, and some of it was supposed to be legal tender. It was backed or not backed. Um, it, some of it was good for certain types of debts. Some of it was good for all debts. So they complained that it was they weren't getting paid in something stable. Their money was losing value. So. The king said they couldn't do it any. The colonists couldn't do it anymore, and then in um, and so that immediately contracted the money supply. That that was their money supply, and suddenly they can't um, issue anymore. So they started going into a depression, and and uh, Franklin Benjamin Franklin went to England and argued with Parliament, saying that this was responsible for the for the abundance in the colonies and it was such a great system and that they should allow it. Well, what that it sort of backfired because the um, 
the Bank of England was respond. They were issuing the money for England, and they were lending. They were issuing their own paper banknotes and lending it to the government, and that was the national money supply. So they had a constant source of revenue from this uh, paper money. This was the competitive form of paper money, which was bank banker issued rather than government issued. So they were they were always getting the interest on that money. They they were. It was supposedly backed by gold, but in fact, they would issue, uh, they could issue up to 10 times as many paper notes as they had gold because people only came for their notes, ten, or their gold 10% of the time it was discovered by trial and error. So, so they tended to issue like about six times as many notes as they had gold. So that meant five of those notes were not backed by anything and getting interest on all of them. So it's a very good money-making deal for the, for the bank. So they weren't real pleased when the, um, when they realized that the colonists were essentially breaking away, that they had their own money system, they were, they were getting the profits. They were getting, it's called the seniorage, the, the profit from, or the benefit of being the issuer of the national money supply instead of the bank itself getting the seniorage. So they leaned on Parliament, the Bank of England leaned on Parliament to, um, or leaned on the king to forbid uh, issues of paper money altogether in the colonies. So when that happened, then you had a serious depression going on, and um, the colonists were forced to pay for the pay taxes in basically a foreign currency. I mean, it's rather like uh, um, third world countries having to pay the IMF. They they had to pay in banknotes that they issued by the Bank of England that they had no power over. They didn't have gold and silver, so they had to borrow from the British. And that was the whole taxation without representation thing. That here they were being taxed in a currency over which they had no control, and they weren't represented, which meant it wasn't really their government. Um, so that so when they so they went back to printing their own money, as they had to do in order to have a money supply, and um, this was considered an act of rebellion because the king had you know, very clearly said they couldn't do it. Once again, Ellen Brown of webofdebt.com, and I would urge my listeners not only, of course, to check out Ellen Brown's book, Web of Debt, and some of her other writings, but also to check out a YouTube video also by the name Web of Debt, which can be found through the documentation list for today's episode, which is a, a video of a lecture that she delivered in Michigan in November of 2008, shortly after the economic collapse began in earnest, where she talks about some of these historical examples and also about some of the real solutions that we could implement going forward to try to resolve this economic catastrophe which threatens to starve and bankrupt millions if not billions around the world. Again, it cannot be stressed just how severe and how very, very important the times we're living through are, and how important it is for us to be thinking and engaging critically the people who are offering various solutions so that we can decide for ourselves which ones we would like to take up. Now, getting back to the script idea, the obvious question is, has this been used since and could it be used as a way to implement a solution to our current economic crisis? And some answers to that come surprisingly enough from 
Time.com, who in December of 2008 actually looked at this issue, obviously spurred on by the economic catastrophe unfolding at the time. And they wrote an article entitled, Alternative Currencies Grow in Popularity. Quote, Most of us take for granted that those rectangular green slips of paper we keep in our wallets are inviolable, the physical embodiment of value. But alternative forms of money have a long history and appear to be growing in popularity. It's not merely barter or primitive means of exchange like seashells or beads. Beneath the financial radar, in hip U.S. towns or South African townships, in shops, markets, and even banks, people throughout the world are exchanging goods and services via thousands of currency types that look nothing like official tender. Alternative means of trade often surface during tough economic times. When money gets dried up and there are still needs to be met in society, people come up with creative ways to meet those needs, says Peter North, a senior lecturer in geography at the University of Liverpool and the author of two books on the subject. He refers to the scripts issued in the US and Europe during the Great Depression that kept money flowing, and the massive barter exchanges involving millions of people that emerged amid runaway inflation in Argentina in 2000. People were kept from starving this way, he says. Closer to home, Ithaca Hours, with a livable hourly wage as the standard, were launched during the 1991 recession to sustain the economy in Ithaca, New York, and stem the loss of jobs. Hours, which are legal and taxable, circulate within the community, moving from local shop to local artisan and back, rather than leaking out into the larger monetary system. The logo on the hour reads, In Ithaca We Trust. Alternative or complementary currencies range from quaint to robust, simple to high-tech. There are greens from the Lettuce Patch Bank at the Dancing Rabbit Eco Village in rural northeastern Missouri. In western Massachusetts, one finds fine artist-designed Berkshires, which are convertible to U.S. dollars. More than $2 million in Berkshires have been issued through the 12 branches of five local banks, according to Susan Witt, executive director of the E.F. Shoemaker Society, the nonprofit behind the currency. And in South Africa, proprietary software keeps track of community exchange system talents. One ambitious plan is to make Kyalicha, a vast, desolate township of perhaps 1 million inhabitants near Cape Town, a self-sustaining community. An alternative currency is generally used in conjunction with conventional money. One may use local currency at the farmer's market and regular greenbacks at the supermarket. It doesn't try in any way to replace cash, says Christoph Hensch, a Swiss national and former banker living in Christchurch, New Zealand. Rather, it offers a way for people to share and redeem value they have in the community. He says the currencies are most useful in geographical areas or social sectors where money doesn't flow sufficiently, citing, for example, New Zealand's Golden Bay, which is so remote that it sometimes nearly functions as its own economy. End quote. Well, as interesting as the topic of alternative and local currencies are, they tend, of course, not to be so systemic as to be fundamental monetary reform, which is really the subject of what we're dealing with today. So instead, I'd like to leave you today on the topic, again, of money created by the government for the use of the people. And I'd like to turn back to another excellent documentary that I've cited time and again on this podcast, and that is Money as Debt by filmmaker Paul Grignon in Canada. 
And uh, of course, I have interviewed Paul Grignon twice now, uh, first back way back when the Corbett Report was first introduced back in 2007, and then more recently for an uh, episode of Economics 101. And for anyone who has taken a look at that Economics 101 or who has studied some of his later work, including Money as Debt 2, Promises Unleashed, I think it's fair to say that Paul Grignon's uh, thinking about the way that currency should be used and the way a real monetary system should function has changed drastically over the last few years, or at least has expanded drastically and become, I'd say, a fair bit more complex. And uh, therefore, I would wholeheartedly recommend that people follow the link from the documentation section to find a link to his homepage where you can start exploring the ideas of perpetual coin and, and things of that like, which are, again, extremely interesting. And I think do present extremely fascinating ideas for the way that currency should be working in our society, but extremely complex, I think, and and tend to be a little bit over the range of what we're talking about right now, which is just the fundamental division between people who want to wrest the money, power of money away from the banksters by making it all dependent on gold, and those who want to wrest the power of money away from the banksters by making it a bill of credit instead of instead of the bill of debt, through which we all become, of course, indebted to the banksters. Now, again, as I say, this is a a genuine debate that rational people do disagree on, and there are people that I respect a great deal who do disagree on this point, so it's one that we will return to again in this podcast, but I feel that I've spent a lot of time building up the gold as money case in various ways on this podcast, including with some of my previous guests, so I wanted to take today to explore the other side of the debate, the idea that people can take the creation of money that power that comes, the liberating power that comes with the creation of money into their own hands instead of relying on banks to do it for them or instead of relying on the vagaries of digging some precious metal out of the ground and all that that implies. So once again, today is just a way of expanding the debate and it is a debate that we will continue to display and engage in in this podcast, not in a way to belittle anyone else's position or to try to point fingers at anyone or besmirch their ideas, but just as a way of trying to come to a deeper understanding of what it is we're talking about when we talk about the real solutions, because make no mistake, the absolute abysmal nature of the system that we're in is not natural, and it did not happen by accident that we are in this system of perpetual debt enslavement to a very few who run the banks. That is a system that was carefully crafted over a period of centuries. And again, if we do not know the history of the people's fight against those financial institutions, we are doomed to be enslaved forever. These are the absolute fundamental issues of our time, and it is only by engaging them in a thoughtful and educated way will we ever be able to construct a real and viable alternative solution. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 140 of the Corbett Report, Requiem for the Suicided, Terence Yakey. Monetary reform, like electoral reform, is a big topic and one that requires a willingness to change and to think outside the box. Monetary reform, again, like electoral reform, will not come easily. 
because the enormously powerful interests that benefit from the existing system will do their utmost to maintain their advantage. Now that we've seen that money is just an idea and that in reality money can be whatever we make it, here's one very simple alternative monetary concept to consider. This model is based on systems that have worked in the past in England and America, systems that were undermined and destroyed by the goldsmith bankers and their fractional reserve system. To create an economy based on permanent interest-free money, money could simply be created and spent into the economy by the government, preferably on long-lasting infrastructure that facilitates the economy such as roads, railroads, bridges, harbors, and public markets. This money would not be created as debt. It would be created as value, that value being in the form of whatever it was spent on. If this new money facilitated a proportional increase in trade requiring its use, it would cause no inflation whatsoever. If government spending did cause inflation, there would be two courses of action available. Inflation is equivalent in effect to a flat tax on money. Whether the money goes down in value 20% or the government takes 20% of our money away from us, the effect on our buying power is the same. Viewed this way, inflation in place of taxation might be politically acceptable if well spent and kept within limits. Or government could choose to counter inflation by collecting tax monies that it then takes out of use thus reducing the money supply and restoring its value. To control deflation, which is the phenomenon of falling wages and prices, the government would simply spend more money into existence. With no competing private debt money creation, governments would have more effective control of their nation's money supply. The public would know whom to blame if things went wrong. Governments would rise and fall on their ability to preserve the value of money. Government would operate primarily on taxes as it does now, but tax money would go much, much further as none of it would be required to pay interest to private bankers. There could be no national debt if the federal government simply created the money it needed. Our perpetual collective servitude to the banks through interest payments on government debt would be impossible. Much 
Jobs that went at home, he had to call. His little life is 